And as you take your seat, would you open with me in the Scriptures to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16 will be the psalm that we look at this morning for the sermon. And as we read it, I think you'll see that it is a psalm that at its heart is about enjoying God. The enjoyment of God is the theme of Psalm 16. It will be the theme for the sermon this morning. The enjoyment of our God. So I'll read the whole psalm. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. I'm sure many of you perhaps have heard a quote that goes something along the lines of this when it comes to defining the Puritans. I assure you the sermon this morning is not going to be about the Puritans, but hopefully we'll get to the point in just a moment. But to begin with, I want to start with a quote that's often used. It was coined by someone most likely in the 20th century, but it's been used a number of times since then to describe Puritanism, and it goes like this, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, might be happy. (laughs) And I wonder, I wonder if, so so the Puritans, for those who don't know, the Puritans are uh, mostly 17th century Christians, mostly in England, and they were known for their holiness, or at least for their piety, They were known for their understanding that the entirety of the Christian life must be brought under the authority of God's Word. And as a result, it was assumed that they must be stick-in-the-mud kind of people. Wet blanket folks uh, that you wouldn't be likely to see smiling and you certainly probably wouldn't want in a typical social gathering. And, And I wonder if people today might view Christianity similarly. If someone might say of 21st Christians, Christianity is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having fun, might be happy, might be joyful. Is it a right assumption that a serious desire for holiness, a serious desire to obey everything that God has written in his word and to bring the entirety of our lives into submission to his word, is it a right assumption that that stands in contradiction or conflict with happiness, 
with having a good time, with joy, with delight. Does an emphasis on holiness mean that we must be a somber and gloomy kind of people? That's the question for us this morning. Is it a right definition to say that we fear that someone somewhere might be happy, much less ourselves? Well, to go back to the Puritans again for a minute, their own doctrinal standards demonstrate that that's not what they believed at all. And so if you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, many of us can quote this by memory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I will go John Piper and I will say, our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. How do we glorify God? We enjoy him forever. That is the chief aim, the chief purpose for which God created you, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, the reason you have been created is to find your full enjoyment in God. You've been created for that purpose. And if you are a Christian, you have been redeemed for that purpose. That is why Jesus saved you, that you might enjoy him forever. This psalm, Psalm 16, is an expression of the kind of enjoyment that a person in Christ finds in the Lord. Psalm 16 is about the enjoyment of God, and it shows to us not only that we are to enjoy God, but it also helps us understand how it is that we pursue that joy and that enjoyment of God. What does it look like for you, day in and day out, to pursue genuine delight in your God? I think to make it simple, we can draw three applications from Psalm 16 with regard to what it looks like to pursue enjoyment of God in this life. And first, it looks like taking refuge in God's goodness. Taking refuge in God's goodness. That'll be the first point in verses 1 to 4. But then secondly, it looks like recounting God's provision. Recounting God's provision, and that will be verses 5 to 8. And then lastly, it looks like anticipating God's joy anticipating God's joy. Those are the final three verses, verses 9 to 11. So what does it look like to pursue in your life right now a growing enjoyment of your God and your Redeemer? First of all, it looks like taking refuge in God's goodness. Let's read again verses 1 to 4. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their name upon my lips. Verses 1 to 4 have to do with taking refuge in God's goodness. David, as he writes this psalm, is in trouble of some form, which is evident from his cry, this eager initial cry, Lord, preserve me. That, that simply means keep me, guard me, protect me, watch over me from my enemies. Preserve me, O Lord. A lot of commentators believe this psalm is probably written when David is fleeing from Saul and hiding out in different places, uh, often in caves, hiding from Saul as Saul hunted him down, tried to take his life. And so perhaps in that situation, David cries out to the Lord, preserve me, keep me, watch over me, protect me. And where does he turn? Well, he says, I take refuge in you. 
Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The scriptures often speak of refuge, and they use a number of uh, images or pictures to help us understand what it means to take refuge in the Lord. And so sometimes a refuge is a cave uh, that someone runs to to hide out in so that they're hidden and protected from the onslaught of the enemy. That would be applicable to David as he fled from Saul and is hiding in different caves. It's also at times compared to a shield. To take refuge is like holding up a big shield against the onslaught of the enemy's uh, attack. You hide behind a strong shield. Sometimes a refuge is compared to a bird that takes shelter under its mother's wing, the place of protection, of safety, of comfort. The imagery uh, varies from passage to passage, place to place in the Bible, but the idea is consistent. The, The place of refuge for any individual is the place that they run when their sense of security and safety is threatened. That's what a refuge is. It's a place you run when you feel threatened and in danger, when your safety and security are being threatened. And so a refuge is something that you consider to be a place of comfort. A refuge is a place you consider to be a place of safety, security. So the problem as fallen human beings is that we often seek that kind of refuge and safety in places that can offer us no refuge and no safety at all in any ultimate sense. And so our refuge may be something as simple as entertainment. How many of us in moments of stress and anxiety and fear, when we are disappointed by life, disappointed by siblings, by parents, by spouses, by coworkers, by bosses, how many of us in moments of stress run to things like entertainment just to distract us, just to get our minds off things? Or it could be something like food, the immediate gratification of turning to food and feeling the comfort of a satisfied stomach. We run to something like food for refuge. It could be a new relationship, perhaps disappointed by one relationship, and so we run to another in the hopes that maybe this new friendship will offer me uh, what that one left me without, Uh, or even uh, perhaps in a girlfriend or a boyfriend. This one disappointed me. I'm going to run to the next. Maybe he'll make me feel loved. Maybe he'll make me feel valued, like I have some sort of worth. The same for a man running to the next woman, perhaps. In all kinds of situations, we are prone to run to these refuges that promise some sort of safety, and we believe that promise, and so we run to them, we take refuge in them, but they're no real refuge at all. Growing up, we, we played uh, from time to time flashlight tag at night. Uh, I'm sure maybe some of the kids here have played flashlight tag, and this particular version of flashlight tag involved one person standing on the porch with a big spotlight, and the rest of the kids who were playing scattered down at the bottom of the hill, about 100 yards or so away. And the person on the porch, uh, the, the purpose of the game was to turn the light off for a few seconds and then to turn the light back on. When the light was off, everyone had to run as fast as they co- could up the hill in an effort to try to make it to the porch. But as soon as the light came on, if the light spotted you, you're out. It's flashlight tag, so you would be out. And so, Basically, the way the game worked is you would run as fast as you can, and then the moment the light came on, you looked for whatever hiding place you could find as close as possible that would offer you some sort of protection from the light. And I think as humans, we function that way. 
We, we run through life and we have this sense of confidence. Things are going well. Everything's okay. And then suddenly, it's not. And where do we go? So often we go to the closest place of refuge. That thing that's closest at hand that we think, if I hide away in this, it'll fix my problem. It will, it will take away my anxiety for a while. It will take away the pain. It will distract my mind. This will make things better for me. But David says, my hiding place is the Lord. My refuge, he says, is the Lord. And why is it that David claims the Lord alone as his refuge? He says, verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. If you notice there in your Bibles that the first use of the word Lord is written in all caps. The second use is written with only one cap in verse 2 at the beginning of the verse. Many of you know that that means the first use is God's covenant name, the I am name of God, Yahweh. So whenever you see in your Bibles that Lord is written in all caps, uh, it's, it's meant to, to tell you this is Yahweh. This is the name Yahweh that's being used. The second one is Adonai, which is owner, master. And so what David is saying is, I said to the Lord, to Yahweh, my covenant God, the one who has promised covenant faithfulness and loving kindness to me, I have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, Adonai. You are my owner, my master. My life is in your hands. My life belongs to the hands of the covenant faithful God. Because this is the only place where I find any good, David says. There is no good outside of the covenant faithfulness of my Lord, Yahweh. And so David is convinced that the only place of refuge to which he can run at any point in time is Yahweh, the Lord in whom is all his good. But what happens in the next couple of verses? Verses 3 and 4. It seems like David changes the subject or changes the topic. He says, I have no good besides you at the end of verse 2. And then he says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So what is David doing there in verses 3 and 4, and how is that connected to him taking refuge in the Lord alone? Because the Lord alone is his goodness. Is he changing topics, beginning a new theme? He's been looking vertically to God and saying, God, you alone are my good, and then now all of a sudden he's, he's moved just to consider horizontal relationships? Is that what's taking place? Well, I don't think it's what's taking place. He talks in verse 3 about his delight in the saints of God. Verse 4 is about his refusal to associate with idolatry, with false worship. And I think what David is saying is simply this. All of my good is found in the Lord. Every single ounce of good that I would ever experience in life comes from him. And so I delight to associate myself wholeheartedly with those who seek and worship him. And I refuse to allow my heart to be allured into the false worship of the pagan nations. All of my goodness is in him, and so I will stand firmly upon the worship of Yahweh alone, together with his people. And that is where much of the battle for the enjoyment of God takes place in life. Will we really believe, on the one hand, that all of my good is found in the Lord? 
Or will we be allured, on the other hand, into thinking that the false hopes and the promises of false worship can actually bring some measure of delight and satisfaction to my soul? This is where the battle for the enjoyment of God takes place, and it's what James says in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift comes from above, namely from God, the Father. What does that mean about every other gift? Where does it come from? Not from God, right? From the earth, from Satan, from sin, from the flesh, from the world. If it's good, it is from God. If it is not from God, it is not good. And so James is pleading with us, don't be deceived because it's so tempting to be deceived. It's so easy to be deceived into thinking, I know this is not God's will, but it seems like it's going to meet my need right now. And so, and so James is saying, don't give in to the allurement of false worship. Don't give in to the allurement of the empty promises of the idols and the sin of this world. Align yourself wholeheartedly with God and with his people who delight in him and believe that your good is in God alone. Again, that's where your fight day after day is going to be found in your attempt and your pursuit of enjoying God. Will you believe that what God has said and that what God commands in his word is really good? And will you take refuge in believing his word? Or will you find yourself allured into believing and acting upon the lies and the false promises of this world? You cannot enjoy God if you are being brought into the misery that David says will come to pass through false worship. If you notice that at the end of verse 4, uh, sorry, the beginning of verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. In other words, David is saying this, if you want to be sorrowful, if you want to be a miserable human being, not just in this life, but for eternity, if you want to be miserable, then go worship the things of this world. Then go pursue a life of sin. Then go seek after the things that God has commanded you not to do. If you want to be miserable, go do those things. But as for me, I'm going to stand with those who worship Yahweh because that's where life is found. And so we take refuge then, first of all, in the goodness of God. That's how we enjoy him, taking refuge in God's goodness. And then secondly, we recount God's provision. This is verses 5 to 8. We recount God's provision. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. David is recounting the Lord's provision in these verses. He's uh, in a sense, he is preaching to himself. He is declaring to himself, reminding himself of the Lord's provision. And what is it that God has provided for David? Well, first of all, he's provided himself. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord has provided himself to David. The, the language here of inheritance and heritage and lot that David is using in verses 
uh, 5 and 6, sorry, I think I might have said 6 and 7. In verses 5 and 6, the language that he's using is the language of the Israelites as they came into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Um, So if you remember in the book of Joshua, Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. They conquer the nations there. They take over the land. And then little by little, Joshua begins to give out the inheritance, the allotment of the land to each of the tribes, with the exception of the Levites. And so what David is basically saying is the allotment, the heritage, the inheritance that God has given me is good. It is beautiful. The picture is walking out and seeing the land that's been given to him and and measuring the lines along the border and looking at the beautiful scenery and seeing the resources that are available in the land and coming to the conclusion, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. God has given me a good lot, a good inheritance. But it's obvious that David isn't talking about land, is he? In fact, as I mentioned, David is actually on the run probably as this psalm is written, and he's been ripped away from his physical inheritance in the land. Uh, He's probably not even in Jerusalem at this point as he writes this psalm. And so he's not talking about physical land, but he's talking about God himself. He says in verse 5, I lost my place, verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. So what is David's inheritance that is beautiful to him? It is the Lord. The Lord himself is his inheritance. In other words, David's basically saying, I don't need to be in the land. I don't need to be sitting on my throne in Jerusalem. I don't need to have all of the benefits of the physical inheritance of God in the land of Canaan in order to be full and satisfied. Because the Lord is my portion, David is saying. He has given me himself. And he's given himself to David, first of all, through his word in verse 7. If you see that, David says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The idea there is that the night is often the place where the greatest measures of fear take over us. Uh, Often, the scriptures speak of night as a time of anxiously longing for daybreak, waiting for the time when anxious fears will subside and day will come and we'll be able to rest securely again. And so David says, in the night, when I am anxious, when I am fearful and overwhelmed by circumstances, in those times of fear, the Lord himself counsels me. And he says, my mind instructs me. The word for mind there is actually kidney. David says, my kidney instructs me. What in the world does that mean? The way the Hebrews spoke is that the deepest parts of you physically were used to represent the deepest parts of you spiritually as a being. And so what David is saying is when the guts of who I am need to hear from the Lord, when the deepest parts of me are shaken, God meets me there and he counsels me in the gut of my being through his word. Uh, Often God's counsel is directly associated with God's testimonies in the scriptures Psalm 119 speaks of God's testimonies being the counsel in which the psalmist delights. So when God counsels us, it's through his word in the deepest parts of our being. How does God give himself to David? How does God give himself to us? One of the ways is he shepherds you, he pastors you, he guides you, comforts you, he counsels you through his word, by his spirit, in the deepest parts of your being when you need it. Not only does he have the word of God, but he has the presence of God as well. Verse 8 I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So David understood then that having 
God as his portion meant never having the absence of God, never being without the protection of God. He says, God is at my right hand. Often you would uh, hold a shield with a left hand and a weapon with your right hand in battle, unless you were left-handed, I suppose. But often it was shield with your left hand, sword with your right hand, which means your right side is often more exposed than your left side in battle. What, the Lord, what David is saying is the Lord is at my right side. He protects me. There's, there's nothing vulnerable about me. He keeps me. He guards me. He watches over me. He's present with me all the time. He is at my right hand. And David says, I set the Lord continually before me. I remember moment by moment, day after day, as monotonous and miserable as life might seem at times, I remember that in that very monotony, the Lord is with me. I have set the Lord before me. He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so David's enjoyment of God was stirred up as he considered God's provision in his life, namely of himself, through his word and through his presence. Now we know, again, as we've already considered, that David's life was often very difficult. I think many of us would agree that, uh, agree that life in this world is often very difficult. And because God himself is David's portion, and because God himself is our portion, what David is teaching us, what God is teaching us in his word, is that through those circumstances in life, there, there is never a season in which we can't confidently say that things are well with us, that lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. As you hear that this morning, you might think, uh, and, and I would understand why, you might think this guy is a hypocrite. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Uh, and so he, he can't cast that sort of judgment on me because my life circumstances are extremely difficult, probably something Luke has never experienced in his life. And that's pr probably true, depending on what circumstances you're in. But David is saying, aside from the circumstances, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places because God himself belongs to me. And so if I am weeping in the night, there is joy mixed in with it. If I am sorrowful over circumstances, God is in the middle of my sorrow with me. He has given himself to me, and he supports my lot. In other words, he will never take himself away from me. The inheritance of himself that he's given is secure. It's supported by God himself. Nothing could ever take us out of the hand of our God. That's the very foundation of enjoyment of God in this life. That, that is the basis for all enjoyment of God in this life, is the certainty that our reward, our portion, our inheritance is God himself. In fact, if we view the provision of God ultimately as anything other than himself, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. If we view our inheritance as Christians as anything other than God himself, we are missing the point of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is not merely that you be forgiven of your sins. It's not merely that you go to heaven. The goal of the gospel is not merely that you be given a new heart or that you have a new start in life. Those are not the aims, chiefly, of the gospel. The gospel and its goal is that we might be reconciled to our God. And so that we as redeemed people can say in unthinkable language, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He belongs to me. He's given himself wholly to me. You, know, you think about inheritance uh, in, in earthly language. You think about 
sitting in a lawyer's office and, and going through the will of a deceased parent and the kinds of battles between siblings that are prone to take place in a setting like that as they fight over the inheritance. Isn't it wonderful that as Christians, we don't have to fight over our inheritance? God has given himself fully to every single believer. Yes, but I'm the youngest sibling. Doesn't matter. God has given himself wholly to you. I'm the weakest Christian. Doesn't matter. God has given himself wholly to you if you are trusting in Jesus. Every ounce of his love and affection and care and fatherly concern is yours because of Christ. In the words of the Apostle Peter, this is why Christ died. He says, Christ died also for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Why did Christ die? That you might be forgiven? Yes. But that you might be forgiven in order that you might be brought to God, reconciled to him, so that you can say, the Lord is my portion. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Simple as that reminder might be, I wonder how often we forget that throughout the day. That as circumstances become more and more difficult throughout life, uh, we've sung earlier, in Abide With Me, I was uh, struck as, as we sang it with how applicable it is. In verse 2, swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Is it not true that decay, corruption, it's, it's ruining everything around us in this world. Everything is passing away. It's all coming to its end. The grass, wither, the flower, the grass withers, the flower falls off. All of it comes to an end. And as we cling and we grasp after it, we, we feel even more in increasing measure just how transient and how passing and how foolish it is to fix our hopes and things that are, are dying. But thou, O Lord, who changest not, abide with me. That's the hope of the believer. That as so many things slip through our fingers in this life, we can say with certainty, thou, O Lord, you abide with me. You are my portion. I can never lose you. You secure my lot. So then enjoyment of God looks like recounting his provision, namely the provision of himself. God has given us himself in the gospel. And then lastly, we enjoy God in this life by anticipating his joy, anticipating God's joy. This is verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So whatever David's current situation at this point is, perhaps running from Saul, if many of the commentators are right, David looked forward to the certain expectation of a very bright future. He says, the Lord has marked out a path for me. The Lord has set in front of me a path that I know I'm going to walk on. And this path that the Lord has set for me is the path of life. And this path of life, which the Lord has set for me, has a destination at the end of it. And the destination of that path is the presence of God. And the presence of God is characterized as fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The fullness of joy, so the, the idea there is being filled to the point of satisfaction. 
being stuffed so full of something that there's no room to, to fit anything else inside. It is full joy, fullness of joy. The heart is so filled with a satisfaction and a delight in the being of God and in relationship with God that it is stuffed full with joy. There is fullness of joy. Not only that, not only is there the deepest measure of joy, but there's also the endless endurance of of pleasure, of joy. So he says, first of all, there's fullness of joy, but then he also says, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. There's fullness and there is forever. Fullness of joy, pleasures without end. David is saying, this path mapped out for me that God has uh, destined me for is a path of life that leads to an endless pleasure in the fullness of joy in the presence of God. Of course, if that's going to be the case, then David needs to be spared from death, doesn't he? If David's going to spend eternity in the presence of God forever, enjoying the fullness of joy there, then he can't, uh, he can't end in the grave. And so he says in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. God, you're not going to let me just rot away in the grave. Uh, you, you, will, you will preserve me. You will deliver me from death, David is saying. And because you will deliver me from death, I can confidently say I will live in your presence forever and in the fullness of joy. Of course, the problem is that David did die. And David was buried, and his body certainly did uh, end in corruption in the ground. And that's the point that Peter makes in his sermon in, Apostle, uh, in, in Acts chapter 2. Sorry, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter is basically saying, David said he w- that, that the Holy One of God was going to not see corruption, was not going to see decay, that his body wouldn't end up in the grave. But Peter is saying, we know David's body did end up in the grave, and it did decay. And so where is that problem resolved? Well, Peter goes on and he says, And so, because he was a prophet, David, because David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead, and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So if you look at Psalm 16, verses 9 to 10, What Peter is saying is that these words are the words of Jesus. These are the words that Jesus must have had in mind as he went to the cross to suffer for us there. The confidence of the Savior to be able to say, though I have to drink this cup in order to redeem my people, though I have to suffer the agonies of the cross and die under the wrath of God in order to redeem my people, I know that my flesh will dwell secure and that God will not allow his Holy One to see decay, but he will raise me up from the dead. This is Jesus speaking. He will raise me up from the dead and I will dwell in his presence forever where there is fullness of joy and endless pleasure. It's speaking of the Savior here. It's true of David. In one sense, this is absolutely true of David. David will one day rise from the dead, and and he will be given a body which, according to the Apostle Paul in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, is incorruptible, imperishable. 
So it's true that David will one day not be left to decay in the grave. But that's only true of David, and it's only true of us because it is true of Jesus, first of all. Because this psalm, first of all, speaks of Christ and his death and his resurrection, it is also therefore true of every single person who is in Christ. This is part of our union with Jesus. To be united to Jesus means, on the one hand, that we are united to him in his death, so that all of our sins are forgiven through his payment, and that the old man dies away. But to be united to Jesus also means that we are raised up with him in newness of life. That's spiritually true of us now. But to be raised up with Jesus in newness of life is ultimately true at the time of the resurrection. So because Jesus was raised from the dead and because we are united to Christ, we have absolute certainty that we too, after our bodies die and go to the grave, that one day the voice of Christ will call out and raise every single perished believer to new life in glorious bodies that are incorruptible and imperishable to obtain, according to the Apostle Peter, an inheritance which is incorruptible and will never pass away. And so what David is saying here is ultimately because the Holy One of God was preserved and raised from the dead, having accomplished the work of redemption, I know, too, that I will also dwell with the risen Christ in the presence of God forever. The full weight of your hope this morning, if you are in Christ, the full weight of your hope rests upon the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, according to the Apostle Paul, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Jesus' body is still in the grave, we have no confidence that our sins are forgiven. We have no reason to believe that we will be raised to new life after we die. We have no reason to think that we will be with God forever. Your faith is worthless, Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. But in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, he says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me also. So what Paul is saying, and what we can build our hope upon this morning, is that we know for certainty that our faith is not worthless and it's not in vain, that we're not still in our sins, because Paul says Jesus rose from the dead and he was witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people, including me, Paul says. I saw him. He appeared to me as the resurrected Savior. And so I have certainty that my hope is not vain, that I'm not still in my sin. It was as David looked forward to that hope in verse 9 of Psalm 16 that he experienced a greater measure of joy in his own heart here and now. So future anticipate, the anticipation of future joy in the presence of God stirs David's heart to real enjoyment of God now. He says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. My heart is glad, David says. My glory rejoices. I I have every reason to be glad, David is saying, to rejoice because of what Christ will one day do for him and what he has now done for us. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, which Pastor Alphaeus Atkins preached on a a couple months ago. It's as we look forward to the certainty of future joy that we find the, the inner heart 
being renewed and refreshed. If, if, we, if we fail to daily, regularly recall the reality of the resurrection, then your joy will certainly shrivel up. I guarantee it. Out of personal experience, our joy cannot be sustained when we forget the resurrection. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, do not, uh, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being re- renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Is your heart being renewed day after day as you consider and set your mind upon the things that are eternal, the resurrected life that will be yours through Christ at his return. So enjoyment of God, then, it means not only, first of all, taking refuge in God's goodness day after day, moment by moment, not only recounting, telling ourselves again and again all of the provision that God has made for us, especially in giving us himself, but it especially looks like anticipating that future joy the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore that are ours through Christ at the right hand of the Father. In just a moment, we're going to sing, It Is Not Death to Die. We'll finish with that this morning. And the words remind us that the one who has put their hope in Christ, every good news that's been proclaimed this morning is only for believers. And so if you're not trusting in Christ, then uh, I, I hope you don't walk away today thinking that all is well in your life. It's not. Until you take refuge in the living Savior. But for all who have taken refuge in the living Savior, we're reminded in these words that it's not death to die, to leave this weary road, and to join the saints who dwell on high, who've found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. That is the certain future of every single believer. The moment our eyes close in death is the moment we awake in the fullness of joy in the presence of our God. Christ has accomplished that for us. Our hope and our enjoyment of him only increases as we remember day by day that he has been raised from the dead and therefore we have hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Christ and for all that he's accomplished for us. We confess that we are most undeserving of a future like the one that you've given to us. We are undeserving of ever living in the presence of a holy God and certainly undeserving of ever experiencing the fullness of joy and the pleasures that are found at your right hand. We are undeserving of you giving us yourself, all of your love and presence and your word. But we thank you that Christ is deserving of those things. And we thank you that Christ has suffered in our place that we might be made heirs of you and of all of your promises. And we do pray, Father, that you would help our hearts and our minds to be strengthened and encouraged as we consider all that Christ has done for us. And we do pray that you would help us through the various circumstances and and sorrows of life to truly find enjoyment in the unchangeableness of your word, your promise, and your presence. Help us to take the light in you of, of all things that our joy might not be shaken because we've taken refuge in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.